What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The following podcast contains explicit language. What'd he do to you? Take your girl? Nah. My shoes. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I know Flacco. Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Represent. I'm Aisha Harris, your host, as always. So if you're anything like me, you've got quite a bit of TV you have to catch up on. It's the new fall season. It seems like there's way too much out there. And it seems like mid-September just kind of snuck up on me. All these shows are returning. Some of my favorites like Brooklyn Nine-Nine and Bob's Burgers are coming back. And I'm also really looking forward to Blackish. You may recall that Andre, the patriarch of the family played by Anthony Anderson on the show, is really, really into sneakers. There is a funny episode where the show sort of highlighted the wide gap between father and son that the show tends to make fun of and the fact that his son, Junior, just does not understand his father's obsession with sneakers. He lets his brand new kicks get scuffed up and dirty and Andre really freaks out. (laughs) What the hell happened to your shoes? We were playing basketball. But, well, you never... Play basketball in basketball shoes. You wear them to weddings, funerals, and the Grammys. Then you dust them off and resell them on eBay and get you some more. It's the circle of life, son. And the funny thing is, is that I thought that the sneaker craze was sort of a thing of the past, or at least it was something that people Andre's age were really into, and people my age and younger don't care so much. But there's a new movie out called Kicks, and that movie sort of puts that idea to the test and points out that sneaker culture, in fact, is probably bigger than ever. And I'm just out of touch and have no idea. I guess I was never really a sneakerhead to begin with. But anywho, Cakes tells the story of 15-year-old Brandon, a quiet, introverted kid from the Bay Area whose small build and impoverished background keeps him on the lower rung of the social ladder at school. 
When he lands a fresh pair of Air Jordans, he's convinced they'll make him cool, until he has them stolen right off his feet by a menacing older dude from the neighborhood named Flacco. Brandon becomes obsessed with getting the shoes back and proving his manhood, enlisting his only two friends, Albert and Rico, on a dangerous journey to track down Flacco. I really enjoyed this movie and thought it had a lot of interesting things to say about masculinity, adolescence, and identity, so I was excited to sit down in our studios with up-and-coming filmmaker Justin Tipping. Check it out. So, Justin, what were the origins behind you uh, coming up with the idea for Kicks in the first place? Yeah, so came up with the idea. It was actually based off something that happened to me when I was 16. I was actually initially jumped uh, because I was wearing a brand new pair of Nikes. And it was that that incident and the fallout of that and the kind of humiliation that came with getting jumped was kind of the emotional impetus of the movie. So can you sort of paint the picture of, of that day? Where did you grow up and what was right. your neighborhood like and what was your school like? What was that environment like uh, on a day-to-day basis and then on that particular day? Yeah, so um, I grew up in the East Bay, um, the Bay Area, which was super diverse place. And, um, and it was often... At the same time, I, you know, it was like every race, race, culture, creed, like socioeconomic spectrum. And so at the same time, there'd be like a hippie drug dealer. There'd be like a gang initiation going on in like the school, you know, playground. Um, and so with violence always kind of lingering around um, and being a tiny, small kid, um, you had to figure out how to navigate your way through those situations. And you kind of understand from the beginning that you can't go you know you can only go to this block up until a certain point and then you don't if you don't know anyone there you don't go there Mm. um i I did pretty well (laughs) (laughs) um for the most part until you know one fateful day uh where i was actually thought i was like on top of the world i thought it was super cool i just turned 16 my dad let me borrow his car which was a big deal for me and i was supposed to go see a movie um with like friends and my girlfriend at the time and this actually theater it's where i got jumped no longer exists got torn down but um it was uh in emeryville kind of by the lower bottoms of west oakland um and i look back now like i knew a lot of people that got jumped there actually (laughs) and i'm like oh i think there was a racket uh but there's like a theater and like an arcade so like a lot of teens would congregate um but, uh, yeah, and I had this these, like, brand-new white-on-white Nike, like, Air Prestos. So were um, those—forgive me, but I'm not a sneakerhead. So are th- those aren't Jordans. They're just, like— They were just this Nikes. It it. Was the, actually, they just re-released the Prestos, which is weird. But at the time, they were just, like, the br- brand-new—the whitest, like, white-white-on-white. Yeah. With my name engraved on them. So oh. it was, like, an extra special, like, moment, like, first pair of shoes I ever bought— and as I'm walking through this theater, and there's like people around, you know, it was it was it was still like an active parking lot from at a movie theater, mm. and like basically two cars like parked up ahead, and like one guy kid gets out, and like then they they're looking at me, I'm like walking, and I'm like there's nowhere else to go, so I'm like ah that's all good, I'll just like avoid eye contact and just kind of well just. But something was was weird, and then it was like ten of them got out, and it was like the first thing someone yelled was, "He's got the prestos." Mm. And whether or not it was ultimately about that, that 
that always stuck in my mind like they saw they saw this thing on me that like was worth something and that's that's ultimately why i got i got jumped i got beat like i got beat down i got like jesus christ out on the ground i was like seeing stars like all the the things you think about when you get jumped like jumped i was getting stomped out um until they someone someone had come by and they just had they had to flee because it was like in a public place and right i then went home and like saw my brother and he like looked at my face and was like like what happened you know and trying to even tell people that or tell my friends that um is was it's 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 humiliating because uh there's also this dynamic set up where they expect you to like you didn't get it hidden they started making all these connections to how not a man you are and um and somehow that became a rite of passage hmm. and what frustrates me is that it's I didn't get to decide when if that's what being a man is. Why I, did, I it was forced upon me, and it's forced upon a lot of kids and young men where they don't get to decide, and it's just that's 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 tragic to me. Yeah, um, just to to sort of get a feel, what um, you mentioned that the East Bay was very diverse. Yeah, what is your ethnic background? Um, so I'm I'm mixed. Multicultural, multiracial, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, Filipino. Mm-hmm. Uh, I might have some Spanish and Chinese on that side. Phil- Philippines. Mm-hmm. Um, and my dad's like Swedish, English. Cool. Um, and, and you turn, I, if you can't see me, you turn out looking like this, in which I literally probably looked Filipino until I was like 10. And then like my nose grew out. It was really bizarre. <laughs> and so... I, I a lot of people thought I was Mexican. Think I'm Mexican. It kind of depends on the climate, how long my facial hair is, where I'm at. Mm-hmm. A lot of people think I'm Muslim now because it's a hot topic, or you know, um, Indian, what, whatever. Yeah. People, someone just asked me for directions in Spanish, like as soon as I got to New York. So that happened. Yeah, interesting. How was that growing up in in the Bay? I imagine since it's so diverse, it doesn't. It wasn't a huge deal for you, or yeah, uh, it's interesting experience. Like the schools, it, the community I grew up in was like predominantly African American mm-hmm. and Mexican American, or like all mostly like working class, like first generation or second generation kids. Mm-hmm. So, like, it was so diverse that it's almost an education in empathy because you're. I had to be taught what racism was and like what like I grew up with like Sikhs and, and like, you know, I like Jewish friends mm. and um and then the older you get <laughs> and like the more you see you're like, oh. Um but it was never it was always just so diverse. And yeah. Yeah. I mean that definitely translates into kicks and also the film you made previously, Nani. Did yeah. I pronounce that right? Yeah, Nani. You did good, yeah. Yes. Okay. Good. <laughs> um, because it is a a film in which um, the lead, uh, whose character's name is Brandon, but who um, the actor's name is Jocking Jocking Gilroy Gilroy. Yeah. And um, he, I imagine he's he looks. I I do not want to assume what he is, but he looks mixed. Yeah, he's mixed. Yes. Um, But then most of the characters, uh, the other characters, are black. And so this has this very interesting hodgepodge. And I wonder how much of, obviously, the the kind of the crux of the story comes from your life, but then how much of that is informed, the fact that you are from the Bay, how much of that is informed in your your work? 
I think the bay is deeply like ins- inspired consciously or subconsciously what what I gravitate towards. Kicks came to me with a I always wanted a, a mixed kid. Essentially, I wrote myself, mm-hmm. right? You know, well, let's be honest. Yeah, I wrote myself as in there. And actually, what's interesting about the casting process and is that in America, we define race as basically black or white. Like, the history of America is black and white. Mm-hmm. And so coming in as Filipino, like, uh, you have to fit in those, one of those, like, first of all, white isn't even a race. It's like... It's, well, let's, just, let's not even – we can get, get real deep right now on some, some systemic racism of America and how it created, you know, com- these communities. But um, what was interesting while even casting the movie was like, well, I, need to ca- I needed to start with, like, the main kid. So Rico's Haitian. He's actually Haitian, mm-hmm. first-generation Haitian. But – and the lead, Brandon, who's jockeying, and he's half uh, Guamanian. And Rico is, is his, that one of his one best, of his best friends. friends. Yeah. And actually, Albert was originally Mexican, so there was actually um, a bigger mix. Albert is... Um, as a, the other friend. Oh, right, yes, who actually turns yeah. out it's... Um, C.J. Wallace, yes. so Biggie's son, yeah. Yeah. Um, and But this is just like an example of how... Actually, how there's such a lack of diversity in casting period is and Hollywood period is... Um, but and then it was like so. Or, for me, I was open to like because because the main kid was mixed. His uncle could have been anything, and I opened it up to like well, he could be he could be Filipino. I could open to Pacific Islanders, mm-hmm. um, anyone. Um, but Marshall Ali is actually from the Bay, given Hayward right next to Oakland or Oakland, and he got he read the script and we just immediately connected. And so when we have like certain roles already cast and it's like okay well now because Ali is African-American his sons also have to be African-American and so forth and then you CJ and Rico ended up being really great mm-hmm. but also that's that was the world I saw like I, I never even really thought about this until people started asking me because mm-hmm. I was never like I'm gonna go make a black film I never like thought that I just started writing and even during the casting process, like I'm conscious of race and what it means and representation on, on screen um, to the point of like, I was working with Kim Harden who did Hustle and Flow and we got down like in depth about light skin versus black skin. And she, you know, she was talking to me about that casting process and like, and so I'm aware and I'm sensitive, but I was never like, someone pointed out to me, it was like, tip, man, you know, you just, J- Justin Hall who plays Cameron, in the movie, he was like, Tip, man, you just made a movie with, like, no white people in it. <laughs> He's like, how did you do that? And I was like, oh, yeah, I don't know. Like, I just, I was like, but you're right. I, I, it wasn't a conscious, I, it, it was just like, this is, this, this is the world I know. And these are like, the faces that I saw. And this, this is an important story, like, that I think should be told that's not really told um, from this point of view. It kind of just organically happened that way yeah do you would you consider it a black film it's 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 like it's kind of tricky uh territory because there's so many ways i think we define 
black, black film. There's right. there well there's a way you market a film, mm-hmm. which you know there a lot of a Tyler Perry film will be marketed towards specifically black people. Right. Um, but then if Denzel Washington is in a movie, it doesn't necessarily make it a, a black film. Right. But I do think to some extent the fact that even though you are not black yourself, this is a film in which the majority of the characters are are black are black Americans, and it does in a way tell a story about black people and so i guess i would consider it a black film like ha- do you have yeah. the label of this being a black film is that the way that i think try to i think it? so yeah yeah and i don't have it there's nothing wrong with that at all yeah. i mean i'm i'm glad i mean first of all i'm glad that i could make movies that's why i started making movies because the lack of representation on screen period um and some, you know, and some people think I'm part black. So it's like, I mean, it's just how, I, like, that's how I grew up. Mm-hmm. So I, I have no problem with anybody calling it a, a, a black film because at the end of the day, like I was saying earlier, I mean, other other minorities that come in or people of color that come in, you know, America is the history of, of black and blacks and whites. It is. And even as, like, Filipinos and, and Mexicans coming in, and you're, you're still inheriting that narrative in a way like you're you need to affirm that narrative and be in it together mm-hmm. as mo- minorities period yeah. so that's how I, I i see it anyway especially filipinos are obsessed with hip-hop you know <laughs> well that was <laughs> what like, i wanted to talk to you about because there is so much music in this movie like it's, it plays a huge part um there are like different uh title cards that come up in between certain parts of the movie right. that have lyrics um I, at first i thought well I, when i started watching it i was like oh this is going to be a lot of like california artists because you had uh e40 um i think kendrick was another one but then you also mixed in a little bit of tupac and jay-z w- what was um like how how did you envision the the music coming together in the film and what made you decide to not only feature so much music, but also sort of put those lyrics on the screen mm-hmm. for the audience to see. I always uh, knew from the beginning of the development that I was going to uh, put the the quotes. The quotes changed over time, but I always knew that that, that would exist in a way that, um, for me, also as maybe just like a f- nerding out as like a cinephile mm-hmm. dude, kid, um... There's always intended to be chapter markers, um, but I didn't want to do, you know, Tarantino does it, Lars Van Trier did it, Breaking the Waves, like um, Submarine was another coming-of-age story recently that used chapters. So it's been done before in some of my favorite films, and I just wanted to do it in a way that was true to the story and the world and the kid. And for me, the kid, you know, he raps to himself as kind of the security blanket in his head. And I think hip-hop is so intertwined and influential on young men, how young men deal with violence, how young men treat women. Like, it runs the gamut of everything. And so I wanted a way to be able to, almost like a Greek play, some come in, chorus would come in and tell you the theme, mm-hmm. um, almost break it down thematically, and have it be universal because hip-hop's mainstream now and it's universal. So that's why I was like, I could, I wanted to mix it with very local Bay Area artists that's like very specific to that uh, culture. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, mix it in with like a Jay-Z or something 
I was, I, I, I think that most of the quotes that I use are class will end up being classic. Mm-hmm. Well, one of them is like I think you have a fresh to death is one of right. the ones that show up on the screen, and uh, that comes around the time I think it comes around the point in the film when. Um, Brendan is buying the the shoes from the the guy in the van, like the Jordan. Yeah, the guy he in the van. yeah he just got his new shoes. Yeah. When I seen them re-release, was looking sweet. I had to cop. So I'm like, how much? You know, like two hundred, bro. So I turn and walk away, knowing he's playing me. And he's like, wait, nah, I made one fifty. And I'm like, yeah, that's more <laughs> like it. And I was like, peace. That's how I got it. He just got his new shoes, and he's on top of the world, and he's. It's the first time he shows his friends, mm-hmm. and you hear the like, "Damn!" <laughs> yeah, the, the yeah, response like, is "Damn!" That um, funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a tough. One. We got like, CJ is hilarious. They're both hilarious. It was hard to get through some of those <laughs> takes without everyone laughing on set. Um, it's kind of ominous, but mm-hmm. it's also playing on the fact that it's a very common phrase. You're fresh to death, yeah, and. I wanted it also to feel ominous as like literally could is it going to be death? I mean it's just kind of like planting in those story beats right for anyone cuz I think anyone I also wanted to make them like understand like short to the point so that like yeah if 50 year old Steve from wherever who knows nothing about hip-hop could still watch the movie and understand it and read it and not be like but what did that mean or like what was that slang mm-hmm. and just read it and like move on with the story yeah you mentioned a little bit earlier about brandon having the rap as like his security blanket and mm-hmm. another theme that sort of comes up is his, what i imagine is his security blanket or avatar sort of guardian angel is the the astronaut in the spacesuit right and he appears throughout the film at different various points usually mm-hmm. around the time when like brandon is at one of his lowest moments and is feeling really knocked down right i mean the astronaut could mean and it does mean lots of different things to different people it means ambition or it could mean hopes and dreams of and and it just americanism in many ways and i'm just curious as to like what did you envision the the astronaut being for brandon it's a great question (laughs) (laughs) it's also the same time i'm like if you have your own personal connection to it like you should just keep it because I've definitely heard different things that mean different things to different people. But for me, I mean, it was operating on on kind of two levels. And the first was almost a formalistic level of it kind of represented innocence and imagination. Because I think there's, you know, the age old, like, what do you want to be when you grow up to a boy? Like trope of like, I want to be an astronaut. But for, on a metaphorical level, story level, for me, I always thought that he represented a machismo of brandon and so he starts off as kind of this like oh you might feel safe when he comes because he's kind of like this guardian angel and you realize he becomes this false guardian angel the more confident he gets the astronaut appears and almost takes him down a deeper darker path right like don't pick up the gun dude like do not bring him to jeremiah's room what are you doing and because it represents you know this idea of what it means to be a man and have confidence that's ultimately why I needed to kill him at the end. Idea, I kill the astronaut. Yeah, just yes. sorry. Yes, <laughs> kill the astronaut at the end because it represents this really flawed view of what it means to be a man. Mm-hmm. I-, I would love to talk a little bit more about masculinity and also just the idea of the jo- like the Jordans, because 
I mean, your real life situation was that you they weren't Jordans, they were Prestos. But um, what 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 is it about the Jordans? Do you think that even th- some 25, 30 years later, since they first dropped, it's still very much this icon mm-hmm. of masculinity, at least within people who are big sneakerheads. But like, it seems like even among kids, it still seems very like that's the thing you want to have. Why do you think that is? I think, I mean, it, even like researching, like what shoe should it be? Um, Jordans, I think, are the nexus of like hip hop and fashion. Jordan himself represents so much because he he was just a kid who made it to, like, I have a silhouette that everyone knows me, like, rags to riches, like, dream. Hmm. And so I think just just the name, it's bigger than him. It's, it's, it's an idea. And because of that, I think it's a, a signifier of social status. It's it's interesting because Jordan actually recently came out, um, not came out, but yeah, <laughs> he, what? He, he, well, he came. This <laughs> Justin Slate. And by exclusive. came out, I mean <laughs> he finally came forward at least and was vocal about the what's been happening in the news lately with police brutality and um, also the violence against the police, and it was a big deal because he all these years has never taken like a very public political stance. And uh, I think it was killer Mike, I think the rapper who tweeted or he Instagrammed in support of him, but was also like, why don't you take some of that money and put it in like black owned banks. And yeah, it's, it's interesting to ask to, for him to ask of that of him. And I'm just curious, do you think that it was too little too late for Jordan to speak? Because you, when you think about the fact that, like you said, they're so Jordans are so connected to masculinity and 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 this ideal in especially the the urban world, mm-hmm. and a lot of people have died over Jordans. Well, he's not even speaking about the sneaker violence, right? Right. right. Like he didn't he address a social issue that's very important, mm-hmm. but um, he's never. I don't think he's ever said anything about i mean yeah. like according to sneakerheads i think there's like 1200 people die a year over sneakers like That's it's really bad that much according to that <laughs> allegedly from sneakerheads a documentary 12 at least 1200 people die uh, over sneakers a year and i mean i know there's way more you know fights and altercations and everything mm. o- over sneakers why wouldn't he just come forward and say I'm not going to lower the price of Jordans, right? Or, but I, I'm going to denounce the violence that's happening around them. Right. I don't know. I can imagine certain people, maybe it's just because I'm a huge pessimist, but I imagine certain people might go into this film and wonder sort of that sort of aspect is like, why is this kid going crazy over a pair of sneakers? That it's not like he needs the sneakers. It's not crucial to his like his health or his well-being mm-hmm. this is excessive like what would you say to that or have you gotten any sort of response from uh, in that vein actually people when i would t- pitch this story um that was a, for people that don't like know the, the the world or or what jordan's mean or mm-hmm. that's immediate reaction it's mm-hmm. just like why like why would you do it 
And people that have seen the movie, a lot of the reactions have been like, that reminded me of me when I was, you know, a teenager and I wanted whatever. Yeah. It doesn't matter. I mean, because I think there's a universality, whether it be shoes or not. There's something about being around that age, whether you get the purse or the, I don't you know, anything. Yeah. That if it gets, when it gets taken or if someone takes something from you, that you feel the need to react irrationally. Yeah. And that's the thing, right? I think it's easy sometimes to forget what it was like to be 12 or 13 and obsess over one. Yeah. One very – and usually it's a materialistic thing because you're 13. I think you're the most imp- – like so impressionistic. Like when it, you're just copying and like trying to figure out what's – what you like and what you don't like. You have no idea. Like mm-hmm. people are just telling you and then you're like, oh yeah, yeah, I should like that. Yeah. <laughs> right. And there, there's a, there's a lot of, I feel like it also, like the astronaut definitely helps, but there's also just, there are a lot of moments of slow motion that you employ that sort of show, I think they sort of give a sense of like when you're, when you're young, just being enraptured by these things. Yeah. For some reason it feels like life and death at that age you put so much emotional weight on them mm-hmm. and you're like you look back and you're like that wasn't that big of a deal let's pivot a little bit and i'm just curious this is your first feature film as a filmmaker like is there any specific filmmakers that you whose careers you wish to emulate or any sort of genre you hope to to take on at some point that you you know are mulling at the moment filmmakers i want to emulate i don't know if i want to what did Simone Biles say? I'm not, I'm not the next Michael Phil, Phelps. I'm, I'm yes. the first. I'm the first Justin Tipping. <laughs> Simone Biles. The Simone Simone Biles, uh, the gold, gold medalist, greatest Olympic uh, female gym, gymnast of all time. No, I mean, I look up to a lot. There's like a collage of influences uh, for me. I mean, Andrea Arnold is one of my favorite filmmakers. Who did Fish Tank? Has American Honey coming out? You know the content and world of Spike Lee and John Singleton. Mm. And I also love the bittersweetness of Spike Jones. Um, I think I definitely steal from like Wong Kar Wai and his romantic use of slow motion. Mm, right yeah. where it comes from. I love like the voiceover of Terrence Malick combined with Scorsese. Um, so there's a lot of filmmakers like, I mean, not necessarily like, oh, I wish... I can make movies like them, but I, I look at their careers and I'm like, look at what Paul Tom, Thomas Anderson's done. Like, just creating your own lane, your own having your own voice, I think is really difficult to do. But I mean, I, I mean, I hope no matter what, I think I just really want to continue to give it, be given the opportunity to tell stories about the disenfranchised, about marginalized groups, of people like things that blend or questions societal norms that's kind of my main goal have you found that particularly challenging considering not just your own ethnic background but the sorts of stories you've told so far in terms of both nani and with kicks having a cast of characters that is not white or predominantly white oh yeah it's insanely difficult how so (laughs) um well uh (laughs) Where do we begin with this industry? Um, it, I mean, it even goes back. I mean, like Oscar's so white, like, you know, happens here. And it's like, and it's not just about the 
the content, it's it's also about you know you and I and like people that are creating. Like when I grew up, I had no idea you can make a living making films, and that's like a problem. That's part of, part of the problem of mm-hmm. why there's not enough content being pushed out there. But it's a problem. It's a problem too because like you go to someone's trying to sell a movie. It's all based on celebrity. But like I was saying, like I couldn't even cast a Filipino, like a Pacific Islander Filipino person in the movie because no one knows, right? Like, mm. like. Um, you had trouble like reaching out to. Yeah, yeah. To, I mean, that's why like Nani Johnny Ortiz, I found him in Highland Park. Mm. Um, he had never acted before, but I had to because and I'm going through casting directors in the system. They're showing me kids that have to be, you know aware and privileged enough to have the like even think like oh i like acting and making films is an option Mm -hmm. so there's already a lack of diversity in getting cat in those roles period so you you can't sell a movie right Uh, we're talking like big big movies big budget whatever without Matt Damon on the cover, Saving China. Um, oh, God. <laughs> and, like, and, but clearly that was, like, a, a conscious choice. To like, well, if we're going to sell, make a movie at this price point, we needed someone with enough star power right. to sell it. Um, so here I am coming, like, oh, I have this, this, this script. It's a cast of all non-white teenage actors with no celebrity really behind them. And no roles for older people. Like, so the uncle, uh, Uncle Marlon, played by Ali, Marshall Ali, mm-hmm. that was literally the only role where, where, you know, people were like, you can get a name. And that's how you can sell the, you know, it, it's all it comes down to, like, how, how can you sell the movie? Yeah. So it's a business. Yeah. Because there's, there's another version of this movie where if I took out every curse word, and all the bad words and cast like Miles Teller or something or like three and Zac Efron and three, you know, white kids in the somewhere getting their shoes stolen. Probably got made it, got it greenlit um, right away. Yeah. But because I didn't do that, you know, it took um, years to convince people and a hundred different people to come together and like throw in some money and like try to get this thing made. Mm. And I'm glad it got made the way it did because otherwise it, I would have compromised probably too much. I'm glad it got made the way it did too. <laughs> it's nice. It's, it's great to see not just diversity, but it, it just, it has like a very, it has a different feel, I think overall. So I, I ask all my guests this and um, I know you said you didn't grow up knowing that you could make a living as a filmmaker when was the last time, aside from this movie that you made, um, that you felt represented on screen? Mm. The last time I felt represented on screen. Even just seeing... Because, like, my, all my cousins are, like, half black, half Filipino, half Mexican, half Filipino, half white, half Filipino. So, yeah, I mean, even just seeing, you know, Aziz and Zari make a show about his experience it's like i get that Hmm. um and even seeing you know the night of recently yeah with the hbo show the hbo show yeah yeah um who actually was in nightcrawler as well 
Mm-hmm. Oh, he um, was great in the Nightcrawler. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's been popping off recently. Shouts out him. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking about kicks and, and sharing all your childhood memories and your uh, understanding of the sneaker world, which I am not as uh, fluent in. So this is very informative for me. Thank you for having me. All right, y'all. Thanks for listening. And thanks again to Justin for coming on to chat with me. You can check out Kicks in theaters now and let us know what you think of the movie and our conversation on Facebook and Twitter at Slave Represent. Represent is produced by the lovely, amazing Verilyn Williams. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is chief content officer at Panoply. And music is performed by the awesome San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. Until next time. Thank you.